edify means to enlighten, encourage, and uplift individuals, intellectually, morally, and spiritually. That's exactly what our Edify podcast guests do, as they share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Monique Chiro Wubenhorst, who has over 20 years of experience as a practicing obstetrician gynecologist focusing on care for the underserved and the disadvantaged. Welcome, Dr. Wibbenhorst. Thank you, I'm really glad to be here. Oh, such a privilege to have you with us. Um, So much in the media now following the Dobbs decision. So let's start with the first of those. Uh, We have seen so many abortion advocates pointing out over and over and over again, whether it's in interviews or on social media, that the United States has the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. Can you unpack that statistic for us? Why is it that we do have such a high maternal mortality rate and what's the actual cause? So I've been studying maternal mortality for for quite some time and it's a complicated topic. It is true that the United States has not the highest maternal mortality rate in the world, but the the highest in the developed world, right. There, there are a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the principal reasons is that if you break down maternal mortality and you really begin to look at it at a granular level, some interesting facts emerge. The first is that the leading cause, well, actually, even let me move back one step here. 60%, uh, there's an estimate uh, based on actual data, actually reviewing data on maternal mortality, that about 60% of maternal mortality is preventable. About 40% does not appear to be preventable. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that maternal mortality often occurs in healthy young women with no warning. And common causes of that include things like preeclampsia, severe hypertension in pregnancy, or a pulmonary embolus. But The most common cause of maternal mortality in the United States is cardiovascular disease. African-American women are at higher risk for uh, cardiovascular complications and death during pregnancy, but also have a higher baseline risk of cardiovascular disease just out of the gate. Okay, and is there any particular reason for that? Uh, It's not well- Or is it a cultural thing? It's it's not well understood. Because of dietary habits or- Well, it's not well understood, but I, I think that we do know that cardiovascular risk is strongly associated with specific behavioral and dietary risk factors. And one of the unfortunate facts in the black community in particular is that 80% of African-American women are either obese or overweight. Mm -hmm. And so given that foundation, you have higher risk for diabetes, higher risk for uh, dyslipidemia, elevated cholesterol, and so on, and higher uh, risk for heart disease. Different studies have focused on the question of whether black women are at higher risk pre-pregnancy, and it looks like that's the case, Mm -hmm. that going into pregnancy, many black women have undiagnosed cardiovascular disease that is unmasked during pregnancy and um, leads to their having higher rates of mortality. The reason that I don't think that the higher rates of mortality are due to two other things, um, which are uh, differences um, in care or or differences in poverty rates, is that I was involved in a study uh, several years ago which looked at mortality rates in the South 
among black, white, and Hispanic women, and actually found that even though Hispanic women who are in the South are tend to be very disadvantaged financially, they have better outcomes in terms of in pregnancy outcomes than black women, and for some outcomes, even than white women. So it's not just poverty. There's something else going on. The other interesting fact that I want to emphasize here is that in the United Kingdom, where there's socialized medicine, people who have access, good access to care, women of color still have double or even higher the risk of mortality compared with white women in a health system which pretty much covers 100% of the population. So I think it's complicated. Now, to get to your question, I think uh, restricting abortion will not affect the maternal mortality rate. Number one, abortion does not address risk factors. If you want to control a public health problem, control a specific public health outcome, you focus on the risk factors. Abortion does not address any of those risk factors. Mm -hmm. Number two, we cannot estimate in any given patient what her risk for mortality is. We can say based on population level data, we can't say, well, you know, Sally, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, it's, 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 it's a stochastic thing. So if you say, well, if we do an abortion and that's going to prevent mortality, you don't know whether that woman was going to die or not. Okay. And, 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 and then the solution then becomes, what percent of pregnancies should we abort? Do you abort 50% of pregnancies and therefore prevent some mortality? You don't know. Right. Do you prevent 100%, abort 100% of pregnancies? So anyway, those are, those are some reasons why. So when supporters of legal abortion claim that abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth, they're really comparing apples and oranges. That's correct. Because yeah. you can't you can't even compare the two because they're such they're so different. They're very different. And that's based on a couple of facts. Number one is the fact that pregnancy physiology is different early in pregnancy. The fetus at eight weeks is an entirely different size. Mm -hmm. The uterus is a different size. And so if you're really gonna compare mortality rates, you would have to compare mortality rates um, in each trimester. And we already know that abortion in late abortions are much more dangerous. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is some evidence that late abortions, especially as they get closer and closer to term, begin to approximate the risk for mor mortality from those late abortions begins to approximate what it be for, what it would be for childbirth. Right. The, the other foundation the argument rests on, which is faulty, is that most abortions occur when? In the first trimester, when the risk is lowest. Mm -hmm. and, but abortion statistics on mortality lump together all abortions at all gestational ages. Mm -hmm. And so you're essentially diluting the mortality risk at higher gestational ages by, these, by the preponderance of abortions being done earlier. Well, let's talk about then about abortion risks. Um, can you speak a little bit to the kind of typical complications a woman might have following an abortion? And why don't we hear more about this? I mean, I know that there are some because I have two friends who work in emergency rooms and have often told me about a, a women coming in with sepsis because there's been an incomplete abortion or them having to correct a perforated bowel, for example. Um, and those don't get necessarily um, coded uh, as abortion-related injuries. So it gets even more complicated because we don't, we don't have any statistical way to determine 
how many women are injured from abortion and how many women actually die from it. Can you ex- expand upon that particular issue? Sure. So I think there's, there's, there's some very important statistical questions in, embedded in, in your question. Um, number one is that I have taken care of patients suffering complications from abortion. There is no abortion complication reporting system. It doesn't exist. So a woman will come in. She might, as I have had to do, need to be taken to the operating room because she's had damage to her bowel or for whatever reason, or a perforation where you at least have to look and see mm-hmm. where, where was there damage to other organs. So without any kind of uniform aborting, abortion complication reporting system, it's just not possible to know what the rates of complication are, complications are. In, a, in, in addition to that, I think that uh, the, because this has happened in, in my practice, that abortionists tend not to follow up on their patients. And I have actually called and confronted them and said, you knew you had this complication at the time. Why didn't you do anything? And so that's not true in all states. I understand that in some states, some abortionists do say, okay, you know, call us. But for the vast majority of cases that I've taken care of, there was no follow-up and no interest in follow-up. The patient tried to get follow-up. So came to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. So I think that without a requirement that these types of complications be reported, it's going to be difficult to collect those data. I think they're more common than we think they are. The other issue that I think comes up is that if a patient comes in an extremis and can't tell you, she's very, very sick, mm-hmm. can't tell you, and then sub- subsequently dies, you don't know whether that was a septic abortion miscarriage or an induced abortion where she became infected. I see. Okay. Well, there's also quite a bit of interest now um, on the part of the Biden administration uh, in making sure that um, abortion pills can be prescribed over the phone, if they're prescribed at all, and shipped to uh, any woman who asks for abortion pills so they can self-manage their abortion. Um, This notion's really been um, being pushed very heavily by Uh, abortion advocates, what are some of the dangers of a woman at any stage in gestation self-managing, to use their phrase, an abortion using uh, abortion medication? Sure. So I think we only have to look at uh, the data from Finland and the data from the UK, because during COVID in England, they widely liberalized uh, the distribution of Mipropristone and mesoprostol, and they had um, a terrific increase in number of women coming to hospital with severe hemorrhage. I think there are three reasons why this is not a good idea. The first is that very often women don't know how far along they are in pregnancy. And we know that attempting abortion with mifepristone and mesoprostol at later gestational ages is very, very, very dangerous. Um, typically, uh, the, the greatest risk is infection. And some women have already reported that they just got pills through the mail and took the pills and then saw a large-sized fetus that they passed in the toilet that they were really horrified, had no idea. Yeah, the trauma of that. Right. And that leads me to my second point. With abortions, one of the discussions I've had with patients is, you know, what what is the impact of this? How How did this affect you? And many of them are very traumatized. In fact, something I've heard more than once is 
I hear a vacuum cleaner and it triggers me. But where a woman is going to an abortion, it's undergoing an abortion, she, as far as, in, in, as, far as I can tell in my mind, is able to dissociate from the procedure. Somebody else is doing this to her. When you, when I've been reading accounts of women self-medicating abortion, one of the things that is absolutely destructive to them is that they realize I killed my baby. And the trauma. So she's the moral actor. Exactly. She's taking the pills Exactly. Herself. And that's one of the reasons why I think that things like abortion reversal are really going to be uh, on the uptake because, um, and I know there's some controversy, but what's very interesting to me is that in um, England, for example, they've recently approved um, the use of progesterone early in pregnancy to prevent miscarriage. But I think that very often women swallow the pills and realize, I just made a huge mistake. And so can it be reversed medically? So there's ongoing clinical trials that are very promising. Mm -hmm. I think the trials are starting to get up to a pretty substantial level. I know that there's been a lot of opposition from different organizations, but I do think that to be intellectually honest, um, with any new procedure, we have to evaluate whether or not it's true. We can't just condemn it and say this doesn't work. And I'll give you a really good example of this. So many, many, many years ago, um, a physician was experimenting with um, how do you identify cancerous tissue in the breast? And he did a procedure which we now call sentinel node biopsy. Mm -hmm. He tried to publish in multiple journals because nobody believed that this was this would okay. work and right. this was a thing. Right. He finally published it, and now that's the standard of care. So I think it's important to say, let's at least evaluate this on a scientific basis instead of being politically biased and saying, no, this is no good. The third reason I think medication abortion is not a good idea is that it invites um, traffickers and angry boyfriends to abort. Like who, who could trick them into taking the And medication. this has already happened. I was yes. reading about some, some guys on the web that were saying, yeah, you know, maybe I should just get some abortion pills and put them in my, um, my girlfriend's drink because she's mm -hmm. pregnant. That it opens the floodgates to traffickers, sex abusers, um, child sex abusers, yep. and angry boyfriends. Yep. Who can very easily now obtain these pills. That's right. And then give them either to a woman who's unsuspecting or, again, as you point out, is being trafficked or sexually right. abused. Or and, who wants her baby right. when he doesn't want that baby right. for some reason. Right. And that's, that's all, a frightening prospect. Yeah. Well, as yeah. I, you know, I, I know you've spoken about this as well, the level of coercion that's often present in an abortion decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it seems to be a majority of abortions are not necessarily coerced where someone's putting a gun to a woman's head, right. but where she feels pressured into making a decision that she does not want to make. Right. And the, and and I think, you know, as as you've all, uh, you know, as someone who works in communities of color, it's it's often just sort of assumed for women of color, if you're poor, you, you're going to have an abortion. Oh, yeah. um, everyone's telling the woman that, oh, that's the best thing for you, even though people in those communities, women in those communities, when they're polled, poll at, um, as pro-life much more often than their white uh, counterparts would. No, that's true. And I think that that's related potentially to levels of religiosity. But one of the lines that you hear, uh, I've heard this said multiple times, is, you know, if you want to have this baby, go ahead. I'm not going to support it. Right. But, you know. So it's abandonment. And right. And then a woman feels alone. Right. And, um, and then know. there's pressure because the flip side of this is paternity. Right. Right. And this is another area that I think is going to be very interesting moving forward is seeing 
that men are going to be asked to step up and mm-hmm. own up because now a woman who has an abortion, um, now there's no evidence right. who the father is. But if she carries her baby to term, um, and in North Carolina, for example, the law now states that the woman uh, has 30 days to identify the father. If the father contests it, he can have DNA. Right. But then he's on record. Right. Well, yeah, and, and it's been very interesting to see uh, the reaction to the Dobbs decision from men. Um, and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was uh, even made this point uh, in an interview saying, you know, women, you not only have to be worried about your daughters now, but about your sons. You don't want your sons being saddled with child support payments for the next 18 years if they're in college, for example. And I thought that's about the most awful thing you could say, um, you know, to to anyone who would want to be raising up a man of virtue and integrity to say he might actually have to be responsible for his decisions. So that's why you need to support abortion. I just thought that was a just a terrible thing to say. I mean, already, you know, I think we've seen um, a lot of the national news stories are focusing on the increasing number of vasectomies now. Um, men in their 20s and even 30s, very early on in their life, deciding it's not worth the risk of being a father and of having to take that responsibility. Um, so I'm going to have a vasectomy. I mean, it's it's really rather shocking. Yeah, it is to me, too, because the solution really is for young men to learn self-control and for young women to feel they can say no. Right. I, I don't want to have sex. I'm not ready to have sex. Right. Um, because I, I think that uh, young men not having control and then not be, being willing to take responsibility for their actions is, is a problem in multiple areas in society. Mm-hmm. And we do want to encourage men to, to be men of virtue. I think you said it really beautifully, mm-hmm. be men of virtue. We want to encourage women to embrace the value of virtue as well. Right. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about medical schools. There was that um, uh, video that kind of went viral at the University of Michigan, I think it was, where at the white coat ceremony, half of the uh, young medical students about to get their white coats uh, turned and walked away because the speaker was a physician who was well known for her pro-life views, even though she wasn't speaking about abortion or Uh, Dobbs or anything like it. It was just that she happens to hold this personal view and they all walked out. Um, How much more difficult is it now uh, to be a a person in training, especially as an OBGYN, who is pro-life? And how do you keep from being coerced or forced to, you know, perform procedures or be present at procedures under duress? I think it's actually easier now than it used to be. And I'll tell you why. Um, when I was in training, you didn't have organizations, and again, I'm sort of betraying my age here, um, but you didn't have organizations like AppLog. You didn't have, the pro-life movement um, at that point was still fairly young, and so you didn't have the tremendous legal support you have, the counsel that you have, and you didn't have um, conscience laws right. on the books. Right. So I think that the intensity of the fight is is probably the same, but the support that people have is greater. And that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that, that I would say to people who are um, in the midst of this in training is that one of the interesting that hap- things that happens is when you stand up and say you're not going to do abortions, other people will too. Mm-hmm. Because the great fear when you're a trainee is, oh, they're going to kick me out or whatever. I'll get and bad grades. There can, I, and, right. and, and there is that negativity. But I think that 
uh, there's a little more caution about that now. Right. And I do think that there is value in standing up. Yes, standing up can be very costly. Mm-hmm. But as a Christian, I would say some of that is partaking of the sufferings of Christ, who didn't hold back from doing the right thing and ultimately, you know, paying with his life. Mm-hmm. But that God honors your witness when you are willing to say, I will not do this because I will not destroy the life of an unborn human being made in the image of God. Well, speaking of that, how does your faith play into your work, um, especially when you're treating patients? Do you do you pray with them? Do you um, do you have a particular um, sort of spiritual life that undergirds what you're doing? Absolutely, and I, I sort of came to this, um, you know. Residency is very intense and uh, it's kind of a difficult time, but it's in those times, as you know, that you really have to hold on to God. You really have to have a relationship with God that is going to allow you to get through um, very difficult experiences and exhaustion and persecution and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that I found in practice, and I've been on a little bit of a sabbatical here, but getting ready, hopefully, to, to re-engage. Um, one of the things that I found is that patients actually want to talk about their spiritual lives. Mm. And that even though people come in with a specific issue, from gynecology, I'm having bleeding, I'm having right. pain, I can't get pregnant, whatever it is, um, their greatest sources of pain are often not that complaint. It's it's the spiritual thing. It's things that don't show up on an X-ray or a CT or an MRI. And so I do uh, think that there is a huge role um, for being able to talk to patients about those deep things that are going on in their hearts. And you engage on what the patient wants to do. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm never forcing my views right, you're just on following their lead. Right, I'm following right. their lead. And I'll ask, I think that it's fine to ask patients if they allow you into their lives and say, you know, do you want me to pray? I want you to pray with me. Mm-hmm. Will you pray with me? Especially before surgery, because surgery is a terrifying time. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the patient's laying there, she's got a, she's, kind of semi-unclothed, right. it's freezing, all these people are flying in and out. Right. And I found that that's a time of, of true vulnerability mm-hmm. where a lot of people really want that and they're asking for that. And then therefore they go into surgery with a peaceful mind and a peaceful heart. Right. So I think there's that. I do think also that this is difficult for patients, for physicians to do sometimes with patients, but it's important to be honest with them about the outcomes of their behaviors. Mm. And that's not something that's popular right now. But I, I feel as though there's a sense in which as Christians, we're called to be honest with people and say, if you continue doing this, this is the likely outcome mm. of that. And, um, and patients will thank you right. for being honest with them. Right. It's a, like that old saying, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. Right, exactly. And as a doctor, that would be very similar, wouldn't it? It is. And as and, and this is a healing profession. We want people to get better. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when people have very significant issues, psychiatric issues, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, people living in poverty, people in abusive situations. Some of the single greatest things you can do are not to do a surgery to remove a diseased organ. They are to say, I see you, I care about you. Mm -hmm. Let me 
let's talk about the issues in your life and what we can do to help you to, to come into a greater sense, a, a greater place of healing and restoration. That's, that's very important. That, that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Dr. Wibbenhorst, for edifying all of us today so that we can in turn edify our fellow Americans. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to speak that. with I you. I love that. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as always, Mary. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.